See, if if in the bathroom Merrick had hurt somebody, um if he remembered to shout, I am not a wild animal, then he would be not be he wouldn't be liable under strict liability. So um that that's what yeah, that's not gonna go anywhere. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll cut that out. Uh okay. Welcome back to America's favorite legal podcast. Uh, it's tends generally related to David Lynch. Uh, we're going to talk about Trover. Uh, we're going to talk about in rem jurisdiction. Uh, Trover. We're going we're going to do some interpleader. Wow. Uh, we're going to break it down for everybody. Uh, joining us back from Peachtree City is Kyle. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing well, thank you. Okay, and and Ken, how are you? Still, still caught up in Trover. That's that's the best <laughs> legal word. Uh, and maybe some bailments. We should definitely do some bailments. Replevin. Um, we can do some replevin. Replevin. Fantastic. Just, you you want to yeah, let, let's let's go both equitable and legal. So we'll have Trover. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I know we have a lot of fun on this podcast. I know we like to joke around, but I do have a serious point to get to at some point about usufructuary rights. So just make okay. sure. <laughs> Clearly having an English professor on the podcast is what keeps us grounded. There's, That's I, right. there's That's no right. question about that. That's right. <laughs> All three Jeff, listeners we are miss like, you. That's right. Bring so back Jeff. I, I, bring back colors. Colors. That's colors. right. Yeah, I can't do colors. It's a black and white you have no movie. colors. You have no colors. Yeah, so we're back to the elephant man. And where are we? Let's go to the lecture, the lecture scene. Yeah, only thing I have to say about the lecture scene is that it's it's interesting the way they displayed him. You know, you you see him behind the curtain, you see the shadow against the curtain. You know, it's almost Plato looking at the uh, shadows on the cave wall, and you see the reaction from the faces of the audience. So it's 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 a very interestingly blocked scene. Yeah, and that's kind of back to your point. Uh, Kyle, about how the display doesn't degrade the um, person on display so much as it degrades the audience, at least in the eyes of the Puritans who banned bear baiting. Um, so that's, I think that's Lynch trying to make that same point about the way the audience is complicit in this. These are, excuse me, men of science, and they're treating this just the same as uh, attendees of a carnival, just the same as the people who were allegedly being degraded as e- everyone who saw this performance was in the words of the of the cop that shuts down bites's thing. Um I do like the way Lynch handles the reveal overall. We don't see Merrick at all for the first 14 minutes of the movie and we the first time Treve sees him in the carnival circus setting, uh, we see only the tear coming down Treve's face and then you know, for a while, we have him just in the sack with the eye cut out of it um, and the sort of long coat, which is like really iconic and really effective visually. There's a museum 
in London that has the actual like hat and sack that he wore, and it doesn't look anything at all like what we see in the movie. But the the way it's designed for cinema purposes is just great, really effective, I think. So, do one of you guys want to make a DC Comics reference to the Scarecrow? That is one hundred percent Kyle's jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. That I, I had not thought about that, but now you know. I, now we're getting into Batman Begins territory, and and uh, um, hopefully no one was that frightened of of John Merrick, and certainly the way, as Ken points out, the way he's presented in the movie, it, it's the it's the fear of what he might look like more than what he actually looks like, and that's that's the more effective way of presenting it. Yeah, I think that's right. I I had a note here that I I wanted to mention that there's a scene in the waiting room of the hospital where there's a totally unexplained and vicious like claw fight between two women uh, that's, you know, bloody and gory. And it's literally just in terms of the plot, it's something that they have to kind of walk around as as they go up the stairs, which is, you know, I think a moment of pure heroin David Lynch. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's right back to what I was saying before about Ripper London uh, being at the same time as Elephant Man London, Victorian London. And I was doing some reading on Whitechapel and Jack the Ripper just earlier today, and there's a pamphlet that from one of the like Jack the Ripper tours that they do in London that talks about how these murders exposed what was going on in Whitechapel to a horrified London society. And one of the things that people learned about was how vicious the street fights were. Just on the streets of Whitechapel, there was this story about one woman trying to claw another's eyes out, and they finally get them like separated. And the woman that's led back into the house um, goes and looks out the window from the second floor and sees the woman that was fighting with her down on the streets, and then leaps out of the second floor window to uh, to resume combat with her, uh, quote unquote, like a wild animal. Uh, which I think made me think of this scene immediately, of course, and made me think about the ways in which people were treated more like animals in this society that the film is trying to get at. Um, but I, it wouldn't surprise me if Lynch uh, or the writers and producers of the movie read some similar stuff and said, we need to put this into our hospital. Yeah, I think beyond just the fact that it wouldn't be David Lynch if, you know, women weren't getting beaten up somewhere in the movie. Uh, I, I think the the commentary that that you know this is making because you've got of course Merrick coming in behind this you know with the sack and and hidden you know and the question is okay we know John Merrick is aesthetically unpleasing but you know who who are the real ugly people in this movie and and John Merrick it ain't yeah that's for sure I think we already did the, am I a good man or am I bad man stuff there is there is the stuff when they're when he's finding out if if Merrick can speak it is interesting the first things that he gets him to say and and you know he starts out with yes you know he he's starting with this positive affirmation and then the next thing is hello my name is John Merrick you know he's 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 getting he's focusing on his identity and his essential humanity and then he follows that up with the 23rd psalm uh highlighting the fact that he's a child of God and I just I thought that was an interesting sequence he could have picked any old thing for him to say um, but the the sequence and the significance of it I, I I thought was rather telling yeah that scene was uh really powerful uh, that's when I lost it yeah. and you know emotionally in the movie. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me to enumerate the places where I either cried or nearly cried this time through. I remembered the I am not an animal stuff. Um, and I remember 
expecting it because that's like a scene you see in like what Oscar montages or whatever. Right. So like the first time I saw the movie back in like college, I was expecting that. And then I was surprised that there were other moments that were more moving to me. And the 23rd Psalm is one of them. The, um, God, the bit where Treves' wife loses it. When he comes over for tea and he just says, I'm not used to being spoken to by a beautiful woman. I think it's like spoken to so kindly by a beautiful woman. Uh, that's in, in Treves's book as well. Uh, the, the real life book that the real life Treves wrote talked about how the biggest disappointment in Merrick's life was that women couldn't stand to be around him. Uh, and that he was just deeply, deeply sad. And so part of this whole thing about like introducing him around society and, you know, um, that's painted as the show pony thing that Treves is doing in the movie was painted in Treves' own recollections as him trying to give Merrick the opportunity to enjoy the company of women for the first time in his life. Well, since we've been, been heaping praise on this movie, and I think deservedly so, I do want to ha- offer a little bit of criticism. I, I think we did get uh, a sequence of scenes beginning with uh, the head nurse you know, commenting about him being stared at again and being put on display for, for these supposedly better people. Uh, and then we have the, you know, Merrick's dream, which is this very openly industrial, uh, mechanized man being degraded to the level of an animal. And then Treves asking, am I a good man or a bad man? You know, there, there'd been a lot of, pretty subtle symbolism both before and after that but we we kind of got a run of scenes there where uh it was it was pretty on the nose you know if you weren't if you weren't getting the the nuances prior to that point uh, it, it, they pretty much ran them down for you in bullet points in the course of three or four scenes there yeah i think that was a, l- a little bit more uh too much show not enough tell that's probably script stuff or maybe editing stuff in terms of how it plays out yeah, I, uh, but I think, it, I don't think it mars the movie too much. No, it yeah, doesn't. It's, it's, it, it's not. It's not awful, but it is. It is a little forthright, you know, particularly for Lynch. Yeah, it's. I think that's fair. The it bears noting that the prime criticism of the movie at the time was that it was too mawkish and sentimental. Mawkish was the word that Roger Ebert actually used. Right. So it wasn't instantly regarded as a classic. It was thought of as a little too sentimental. I. It's hard to for me to frame that criticism now because, you know, I think that there's a world of movies like, I don't know, the um, what's the, the notebook and movies like that where I always call them like movies where Shailene Woodley dies, right? Like the, the genre of, of mawkish movies has gone so far that direction now that this doesn't even begin to register um, as among them to me. But, um, but yeah, that was the criticism. But it's it's interesting to me, again, even in the context of the times, because we're talking about, as, as Ken mentioned earlier, this was the year that ordinary people won Academy Awards. I mean, and that's an openly, you know, deliberately tearjerker, you know, pulling at the heartstrings type of movie. And and right. so for, for that movie to have been rewarded, I mean, if, if Raging Bull had won everything that year. Okay, but if right. we're decorating ordinary people in the year that this came out, why? I mean, clearly this is the less openly 
sentimental and deliberately trying to you know evoke this this uh, uh, this emotional reaction type of film. I, I just that that just seems odd to me in in context. Um, given you know it it it's sort of like uh, Pulp Fiction you know losing out to uh, to uh, Forrest Gump. You know okay I get that criticism, but given that that. Ordinary people was being rewarded. Uh, I don't. I don't really see how this is the worst offender of the year. It's a good point. I mean, Raging Bull is the least sentimental of those three by by a yard. Oh, clearly, clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you want to talk about the the theater scene at the end and the lights and uh, a, a significant Lynch, a common Lynch Lynch reference that that I think some of us saw. Yeah, go ahead, Cal. Yeah, the uh, I mean, I just, I just, it was interesting to me that we, you know, we'd seen, uh, you know, very notably these all these open flames, including in the hospital, and I was like QJR thinking, oh, good gosh, that that can't be uh, safe. Um, but you know, you've got the artificial lights in the theater scene uh, that are electrical rather than flame, and I just think that's interesting because um, you know we've we've got this industrial versus natural type of thing going on, and yet he has this sort of epiphany and this realization in this high point um, of, of being recognized for who he is and not just put on display um, in the midst of all this uh, artificiality. You've got the electrical lights and you've got the, the play. Um, but then you see the subsequent scene in his room and you can both see a fire in the fireplace and there are evidently electrical light fixtures on the walls. And, and I just I thought that was an interesting dichotomy. I would have, I think, maybe questioned the use of the electric lights in the theater scene were it not for the combination of natural and artificial in the subsequent scene. Yeah, no, there's definitely a PhD dissertation waiting to be written on uh, flame versus electricity in David Lynch's work. Um, yeah. And, and that yeah. juxtaposition. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. And, and, and Ken, you made the point that the, the tableau reminded you of Sonny Jim's uh, gym set. Yeah, uh, one of my very favorite moments from The Return. I find myself weirdly thinking of that scene more than just about any other when I when I think back on The Return, and I, I don't know why, but uh, but that's that's what it reminded me of. Uh, what do we think about the fact that Lynch repeated that name, Sonny Jim, from this movie as a as an innocent child in The Return? That's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's weird. And yeah, you know, I thought I remember that scene, the the play set scene as well, Ken. Because when I was watching it, I was so certain that it was ominous. Yeah. Yes. That something terrible was going to happen to Sonny right. Jim. And that's what that represented. Yeah. But, you know, here, you know, the, the electrical light has a, a, a joyful quality to it. I was a, you know, so one of the things that I I observed is that there's clearly a Glenda the Good Witch uh, appearance in this right. performance that he sees, which ties the movie then to obviously... Uh, Wild at Heart, and we saw some some Wizard of Oz references as well in The Return. But the other thing, though, that I was a little disappointed in is that he was essentially seeing a play for children. Uh, he didn't right. go see right. he didn't go see Romeo and Juliet or Othello or Hamlet, uh, which you know his literary uh, sensibilities, I think, would have enjoyed and appreciated. So, I mean, I, I don't really have anything to say about that one way or the other, but it was it's interesting that he saw this sort of fantastical fairy tale of a story where most of the characters are animals. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't tell if there was less of a distinction between children's theater and theater for adults back in those days, or if it just seemed like something 
that would surprise and delight him. And so they took him to it. I, I, I guess I assume the latter, but, but I don't know. Yeah, maybe at this point, should we make a diversion, Ken, to uh, the pub scene and uh, the the horrible scene in in uh, uh, Merrick's apartment with uh, all the guests that uh, what's his name brought? Yeah, I mean, I I have a question, I guess, to to ask about that, um, and uh, and and a quick diversion. Uh, I I should point out I've been sipping slow gin throughout this recording um, because my my research into this era of uh, London told me that slow gin uh, spiked in popularity right around the time Jack the Ripper was killing people in Whitechapel, and the reason was was sort of interesting. Um, there, it, it started as a property law thing. So there was an act of parliament in the late 18th century, late 1700s, that reclassified a whole lot of public land as private land. And in order to keep your little bit of private land that you gained through this act, you had to put up some sort of boundary. And the most popular boundaries were like hedgerows. And on hedgerows, all these little slowberries would grow. And people thought, well, it's a shame for them to go to waste. And so they would soak them in gin uh, to, to add flavor to the gin. Uh, but it was usually pretty bad. It was pretty universally bad stuff. You have to put sugar into it to break down the berries. And if you don't use high quality gin, which people weren't doing, it just doesn't work out. Um, but uh, people started to perfect it uh, about 100 years later. And uh, the Plymouth Company, whose slow gin I am literally sipping right now, uh, started making a slow gin in about 1880, which is just a couple of years before Merrick died. So uh, when I looked up what people might have been drinking in the um, uh, pub where Sonny Jim gets his uh, customers to come uh, illicitly view Merrick, I learned that it would have been, you know, ale and beer and such, but also um, a lot of Madeira and Malmsey and fortified wines and uh, gin, which had started as a gin mania about 100 years earlier, and slow gin. So uh, so that's what I've been sipping during this uh, podcast, and that is my very brief Ken's Beverage Corner for uh, for this episode. Um, and I, I just, I guess I want to ask the question, who's who's more vile which which scene was more stomach turning to you was it the mortal combat kind of a scene between the women in the hospital lobby who are trying to claw each other's faces off or is it the people smushed into that little first floor window of Merrick's room who are like sucking face and then looking over at him and then sucking face again uh because i'm not sure <laughs> i have a hard time deciding but those are two very indelible images for me yeah, the latter is straight out of Blue Velvet. Yeah, oh, it yeah. is. It is. It's yeah, and and for me, it is definitely the latter scene. I mean, you've got that, and and then them looking through the window is is again Lynch in on his very consistent theme about the the fundamental voyeurism of the cinema. I mean, this is very much. Audrey in the wall looking through the the hole into into her father's office and seeing what's going on um and and you know the revelry in the room is very much straight out of you know that night at Leo Johnson so yeah the yeah. these folks um the I, it's definitely the 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 latter scene for me just because of what it represents in terms of Lynch's later work yeah, that's a great point. And it's right back to, you know, this exhibit degrades everyone who sees it. These are these right. are very degraded people. Yeah. Well, I think we're kind of at the end of our outline. This is going to be a pretty short part two. But uh, what what else do you guys want to talk about uh, the movie? I, I've got one thing I was going to observe, but I'll wait till the end. Okay. I mean, we could smush them together, right? It, it could be one 
one podcast if it has to be. I just want to do my welcome back to America's favorite legal podcast. <laughs> that's fair. It's a, it's a yeah, good transition and it works. Yeah. Well, I, I'll, well, I'll just, I have some general questions yeah, at the end yeah. that we could talk about if you like, or you can make um, your general point, Kyle. What? Just just a, a few things that, you know, in terms of Lynch's overall body of work, you know, this one is much more strongly and positively religious in its symbolism than I think anything we've seen from Lynch before or since with the construction of the cathedral and the 23rd Psalm and all that. Um, you know, we, we got... Uh, it was it was very understated, and there was essentially no humor in it at all. None of the the typical uh, David Lynch type of of humor. And it's interesting to me, particularly knowing that you know after this he got the opportunity to make a big blockbuster in Dune, um, and particularly having recently seen the straight story before this, that you have that moving star field at the end, which again very reminiscent of. Of, of uh, the straight story um, and and sort of uh, serves for me as a precursor to Dune and and really I won't say it was out of place but it certainly was unexpected and and really to have started our walk through Lynch's uh, cinematic Irv going through straight story and and now uh, the Elephant Man you know you've got movies with a distinct beginning middle and end that that wrap up with maybe not a happy ending per se but at least a sense of closure and a satisfying sense that you've reached the end and and uh, that's just not a sensation that I'm used to with David Lynch particularly after uh, the endings of the second and third seasons of Twin Peaks. What about you, Ken? No, I think those are those are all very great points. I, you know, I was just trying to pull a thread through this whole thing about um, a couple of different things. So I was trying to keep track of Lynch's treatment of voyeurism and trying to figure out on what level Lynch thinks that he's in the same line as Bites and Treves and Sonny Jim. That, you know, Treves is a, a, a much better alternative to Bites, but he's constantly being compared to him, including by Mrs. Mothershead, who's very cruel to um, Merrick at first, but then is later says, you know, you're just putting him on display all over again. And one of the first things that Treves says to Merrick – or. Uh, yeah, is I simply want to look at you. And my thought thinking back on that was, boy, that's, but that's the problem, dude. Like everybody simply wants to look at him. And I know that you, you are helping, um, but it's hard to convey that in a world where just becoming an exhibit has been the problem for this guy. Um, and, and I found it really interesting the way that like, um, Bites, Bites would say, I own him. I'm his owner. He says business partner very sort of sardonically. And when, uh, Treves describes Bites to Merrick, he set, calls him the man who looks after you instead. So he softens that owner, that very loaded owner thing to the man who looks after you. And that's kind of what Treves becomes. So he sort of implicitly compares himself to Bites. And so I, I just thought it was really fascinating on this viewing to compare that stuff and to think of the ways in which Lynch maybe thinks that he's complicit. It's either Sonny Jim or Bites who even hurls at him, do you think you're better than me? Right. Um, and I, it made me wonder to what extent, you know, the less than mawkish treatment of this material excuses some of the voyeurism. I think that 
we all sort of enjoy things like true crime or the like OJ Simpson documentary because it gives you an opportunity to peer into something really grim and and horrible that pushes certain voyeuristic buttons while feeling like you are apart from it. Like I'm I'm here to root for the cops. I'm here to root for the reimposition of order. I'm here to examine this thing from a perspective where I am sort of better than it. It's not like, oh, I paid my coin to see a grisly murder. It's oh, I'm going to consider the implications of this grisly murder. And I think that if the, if Ebert's first take was right, if everybody who thought that this movie was sort of mawkish and sentimental was right, then maybe it's doubly damning that it presents this uh, sort of grisly subject matter about the oppression of a child of God by society at this and allows you to gawk at him while at the same time manipulating you by pulling on your heartstrings. Uh, but but I think we all think it's not that, that it's a very successful, very moving treatment of, uh, of a very serious subject, several very serious subjects, that manages to steer clear of being mawkishly sentimental and therefore is not as ripe for condemnation as some of these other things. That's, that's sort of the, the conclusion that I drew trying to yeah. think these issues through. Yeah, and, and I think – and I think him – Lynch clearly thinking about it and asking that question of himself through his characters and Lynch putting that question to us because obviously if Lynch is a voyeur for having looked in on this and presented it, then we also to some extent are uh, are complicit in it as well by looking in. I mean, if, if Lynch is Sonny Jim, uh, then we are the people from the pub that Sonny Jim has led to the window to look in, uh, and and he he does something in in this movie that he does uh, with with less subtlety uh, and maybe more effect uh, later on. You know, you've got when Merrick is being led away from the carnival, the boy looks up at the owner's car, but from the angle where he's sitting. Uh, where he's standing, his gaze is staring out of the screen at the audience, much like Frank Booth from the front seat, you know, turned and looked at Jeffrey Beaumont, but he was looking out of the screen at us. And and the accusation he was making at Jeffrey really was coming out at us. And when the boy is looking at Bites, he's looking at us. And and I think we're supposed to have a, a moment there of of at least you know, a little bit of discomfort in wondering, okay, are we Bites or are we Sonny Jim or are we Treves or are we Lynch? And to what extent are those things different from one another? To what extent are we better and and are we just, you know, a point on a continuum of people who are all doing essentially the same thing and maybe aren't as different as we would like to think? That almost sounds like... Uh hacking a television uh, with an axe or uh, sitting on a couch and watching a glass box for hours and hours. <laughs> right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Ken, do you mind if I just steal the list you compiled of things that people call John Merrick? Please. It's, it's yours. I want I want to go through it. Ken was very helpful to, to all of us because he made a list of all the things that people call Merrick in the movie from it uh, by bites, uh, and I think actually Treves calls him an it when he's talking to the boy to see if he knows where Merrick went after the carnival. He he uses it to refer to him. Treves also calls him a, a perverted or a degraded version of a human being, uh, an imbecile. I hope to God he's an idiot. 
Uh, Bites calls him a business partner, as well as the greatest freak in the world, as well as my man. Treves calls him, uh, th- says that he's not refined in his mind, uh, or not to say refined in his mind. Uh, Mrs. Kendall calls him Romeo. A curiosity all over again is what Mrs. Mothershead says. A creature, says Sonny Jim. An abomination of nature, says Son- Sonny Jim. Uh, your monster, Sonny Jim. A bag of flesh, says Sonny Jim. Uh, a circus animal is what uh, the the guy on the board who uh, is thwarted by the Supreme Being's baller move of uh, getting the princess to come into the middle of their meeting and say that the queen wants to take care of this. But the queen refers to him as my treasure and one of England's most unfortunate sons. Uh, and then Ken slipped up and said that Merritt called himself a man, uh, thinking back to the the line of I'm – you know, I'm not an animal. I'm a human being. He said not that he was a man, but that he's a human being, which means that Merrick will not be victim to the Gom Jabbar uh, and that he <laughs> right. will fold space uh, like the Quetzalcoatl Haderach uh, as he does floating through the star field at the end of the movie, which I also want to note is, of course, uh, came from the Paramount Studios, which is where Star Trek lives. So I'm just a dork. <laughs> I think he says both, though. I think he says, I'm not an animal, I'm a human being, and then he's, like, whimpering after, and he says, I'm a man. Maybe he does. No, I think that's, that's, that's probably does. true. I think, probably does. I think it's both. So, when Kyle was like, which is it? I'm like, oh, I think it's both. Because, okay, well, that makes yeah, well, sense. I think, because I, I, it's it's always, when you hear it quoted, again, it's sort of the beam me up Scotty, which William Shatner never said in Star Trek, but it's what everybody remembers. It's the line as everyone remembers it, and it... Even people who have seen The Elephant Man once 20 years ago or just have a, ba- a basic idea of it, that's the line everyone knows. But And I think it's always quoted as, I am not an animal, I am a man. But I think yeah. in the movie, he at least the immediate line is, I'm a human being, and he then may follow that up with, I'm a man. Yeah, isn't it the same as uh, with Play It Again, Sam? They never actually say that in, in Casablanca. It's, I think it's that's the only right. time it's closest is Sam, play it again, or, yeah. or play it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know who did say beam me up, Scotty, all the time was Representative Dan Rostenkowski of Illinois, uh, who was a ridiculously corrupt uh, uh, member of the House of Representatives, but he used to give great speeches, just totally ridiculous speeches. And at the end of every speech, he'd say, beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just uh, I just switched to it because if I'm going to pay to rent these things and watch them while we're talking about them, I'm going to get my money's worth, damn it. Um, so it's it's <laughs> I am not an animal. I am a human being. I am ellipsis, a man. Ah, so OK. They're, there you they're go. both there. OK. Yeah. No, I, I just love the, the, the man human being distinction oh. from Dune. Oh, shit. Yes. Lynch so. is in the mob. David Lynch is in the mob chasing him down in the bathroom. This is this is a oh, weird wow. thing. I just oh, cool. I just got some extra value out of this. So, uh, you know, I'm going to plug a company that does not sponsor us. But um, Amazon has way more info than, for example, the IMDb. And if you rent a movie from them, I watched it first on my TV and then I rented it again to watch on my iPad. Every time I pause it on my iPad, it's got a whole interactive series of things you can click on. And it knows the names of actors who played roles that IMDb doesn't even know, which is crazy because they own imdb so they should get their shit together but it's got all this interactive stuff and right here where yeah, i paused IMDb's it on the free thing, and you got to pay for amazon so they know what they're doing they're point. not they're not giving right. you know the, the you get the cheap free crap on imdb but you got to pay for the amazon real info you're an insider you're, you're a patreon subscriber 
<laughs> You're so a platinum paid. level David Lynch viewer with I, Amazon. And we love Patreon subscribers. But um, where, where I've paused it, it says director cameo, David Lynch in The Angry Mob. The shot of the crowd descending the stairs in pursuit features Lynch in full costume. Although I think that's in that's Amazon pulling data from the IMDb. So, so it's probably in both. Anything else? I don't know that we can top David Lynch being in the in the mob scene, which if literally can, makes it a isolate Lynch the mob. frame. Yeah, yeah, right. If I can make it uh, isolate the frame of him doing that, can we make it the art for this episode? Yes. <laughs> no, you know what? I got it wrong. It wasn't Rostenkowski. It was James Traficant. Oh, Trafficant. I know all Trafficant about Trafficant. From, he's from, a, from, from he's Ohio, a proud son of Youngstown, Ohio. Ohio. Trafficant did a That's lot right. of good right. for the steel workers and working folks of um, Eastern Ohio. Um, I knew a guy in law school, Evan Mandel, who was obsessed with the Trafficant case because Trafficant was going up on charges um, while we were in law school. And he was right. still up on charges when I started clerking in Ohio. And it was very, very controversial because everybody knew he was corrupt as shit, but he was a legend to his constituents. Um, and, uh, and he's right. Yeah. He did used to say, beat me up, Scotty. I forgot about that part. Um, but he used to say lots of crazy stuff. Um, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Very crazy stuff. And all, but of course on the floor of Congress, which is great. Yeah, yeah for sure. If but you're going to say something crazy. You may as well have, you know, uh, legislative privilege. Yeah. Right. Right. right, right, right. Yeah, but it was very controversial because a lot of folks did not want to see him go for very obvious, you know, reasons that he'd, he'd done a lot of good. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, there you go. This concludes our episode about the Elephant Fan by uh, America's favorite legal podcast that's tangentially related to David Lynch, <laughs> at least until uh, – Jeff uh, can come back to us, but uh, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for uh, contributing to our Patreon uh, so that we can continue to uh, pay for the things to make this podcast go. And uh, we're not sure what our next movie is going to be, but uh, I'm sure it'll be a good one. And uh, thanks everybody. Shout out to Jeff. We miss you. We do miss you, Jeff. Yes. Come back soon. Yeah. People cannot, handle these legal references right, forever right. There's, it's, there's it's, way too much outside bring, reading bring another too many yeah, yeah, it's, check it, when it's just the three right, lawyers so please please yeah, come three, back three, three for three lawyers this is not sustainable long term right all right bye-bye